dear lord thank you for today thank you for the start of a new year thank you for 2022 and what it meant for every single one of us thank you because all in all our testimonies that you are and you have been faithful i thank you for life i thank you for hope i thank you for your spirit that is at work in us and i thank you for 2023 i thank you for all that you are said to do i thank you for all you've started to do and i just pray for everyone here that we receive grace to run this year by your spirit i pray that in every area of our lives that we measure growth and we see consistency i pray that even in our walk with you especially that there is growth there is fervor there is zeal to run no matter what life throws at us this year and lord i pray even as we continue with journey through the epistles all through this year that as we go week by week chapter by chapter book by book including today i pray that there is clarity i pray that there is revelation in your word i pray that we are able to apply the message of your word to our lives and i pray that we are changed as a result to become more and more like you in jesus name amen 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 hi abisola hi everyone good morning happy new year again welcome to journey through the epistles i think i put in the broadcast message new year new book same old saturday morning bible study so for everyone here um welcome i hope we're having a great start to the year uh today as you already know we are starting off with a new book first timothy um it's a book i'm excited for because in a sense it's what kickstarts what we call the ministry the ministry books the ministry books thank you yeah i would let's our designer know <laughs> the ministry books right and i i want us to realize that even whether or not you feel you're called to pulpit ministry there's a lot as we're going to see that you can learn from these books we're going to as usual talk about um some sort of introduction what exactly should we bear in mind going into this book and how would that help us understand what the book talks about but before then i just want to share a few thoughts about the start to the year i'll probably talk a bit about bible study somewhere along the line in today's teaching as well but i just want to share a few thoughts about the start to the year and of course it's a new year everyone is excited and rightfully so god gave us um times and seasons for a reason god allowed us to be able to mark times and seasons for a reason and so um there is a great deal of good in recognizing that it is the start of a new year of course for for many it might feel slightly different for some people they might not be all hyped up about a new year for some at least i know for myself for the most part especially when i was still in school it seemed like though my new year started like in august like it was in phases not necessarily with calendar times I, I don't know if some of you can relate to that and so 
2019 August when I got into the US was like a new year for me in that sense. Um, but regardless, regardless of how how um, how you start the year, there's just something I want to say. I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about um, preparing for the new year as much, but I just want to talk a bit about uh, goals and that that motivation we have at the start that okay new year for some new me for some same me but more consistent or stuff like that um and the truth is for starters it is good it is always good to set goals or to be determined to be a better person whether it's at the start of the year whether it's at any point in time if it's january 8th (laughs) It is never a bad time. The best time was probably yesterday. The second best time is now. All right. To set goals, to set um, plans and ambitions that, oh, this is what I want to do with the new year. Hi, Buki. Hi, Chi. Hi, Nifemi. Hi, Ayo. Hi, Miriam. Happy New Year. Welcome. Don't we've not started the teaching proper. Um, but I just want to share slash one i guess um we oftentimes all too many times perhaps when you look outside or maybe in your own personal life and we see that oh there are many years that i have started off in january saying i will do this every day this year i will do this every week this year right i mean you go to the gym for people that go to the gym right everyone knows that january is one of the most crowded times (laughs) to go get a workout because everyone is starting their new year resolutions and it's like part of them is i will be fit (laughs) this year but we are all too familiar with the story that by february march things seem to just go back to normal an easy way to think about this and hopefully this doesn't apply to everyone but um it's something we see in general which is why i'm addressing it just in case there's someone here that needs to hear this so for instance you look at december last year and look at what your what your life looked like like the the routines of your life look like in december does it align with the goals you set at the start of 2022 uh, okay yes one, two, three. I'm, st- I'm still i still don't know what year we're in <laughs> But if it doesn't, then it shows that there are certain things you need to do or put in place. If not, 2023 will probably not be any different. And so it's important to know that a good year is not simply starting the year with good intentions. I think many of us or most of us are old enough to know that that is true. Good intentions are great and they are the start of a better life, but they are not enough. They are not enough. The one thing I want to add, in case you've not thought about it properly, is what I usually call the burden of consistency. The burden of consistency. And what do I mean by that? For you to see meaningful change in your life, you must get comfortable with this burden of being consistent. And 
what does that look like in practice? What does that look like in practice? It simply means what's consistency? Doing the same thing repeatedly. Whether you feel like, whether you don't. Because at the end of the day, when you study the lives of, in quotes, successful people or people that are getting it right in an area that you want to get it right, what oftentimes differentiates us is not intention. It's not even, um, uh, what might, what else, what else do we usually think? Yes, write it down. Yes, visualize. Yes, all of that. But at the end of the day, it's that simple thing we call routine routine it is so powerful i think it is probably humanity's greatest strength and maybe our greatest weakness the fact that we can form a habit out of anything good or bad anything can become a habit and when it becomes a habit more and more it simply means that the more you do it the less effort it takes to actually continue doing it. It's like an object in motion, right? It just gets easier to keep rolling. And so, you 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 think about, oh, this year, I want to read maybe 10 books. It's very easy to set that goal. And you're like, you pick your first book and like, oh, how do I want to get this done? And you're like, okay, I'm, ah, January, I read three chapters or I finished a book. February, let's say you were reading, well, if you're in the bus, you read this and that, you read. And then February, maybe... But by March, let's say you start to have projects, whether from work or from school, and all of a sudden you are not finding, in quote, as much time as you thought you would have at the start of the year, right? And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, I didn't read anything in March. April gets even busier. And it's like, oh, my God, I haven't read in April. And then you're like, ah, oh, you know what? Let's try again, 2024. This, it applies to anything, whether it's working out, whether it's devotion, anything. And I just want to advise, what I would advise, right, is if you haven't set a routine to guard your goals, it will not happen. You, I can, I can bet. <laughs> I can promise you it will not happen. Because very, very few things in life are as spontaneous as we think. Everyone who is successful at anything, if you check it, there is a routine attached. There is a burden of consistency because what starts to happen in our lives or in, in society in general is that we all want the results of consistency. But are we comfortable with routine? And the thing about routine is that it can be boring. That's what we don't realize. Like, it's not going to be some exciting strategy. If so, for instance, you want to be better in the world in December, it's a simple, in quotes, boring routine of reading your Bible, even if it's 30 minutes at a certain time every day. A time that you've looked at your schedule and like, this works for me. And you just keep doing that. You just keep doing that. It's the same thing with working out again. No one, if you've ever, if you work out, right, you start going to the gym and you're like, okay, this year, summer body, this and that. Let's say for the first few weeks, you probably not see anything. In fact, you might never actually see visible changes until maybe a certain time or someone that hasn't seen you in a while. And they see you like, ah, you look different. You might not have noticed because every day you're just doing the same thing. And so it's hard to see those gradual changes. It's hard to see those, but you put it together. 
and all of a sudden it looks very significant i mean think about it if you put one hour every day this year into anything anything at all you'll be better because that'll be at least 300 plus hours let's even assume some days are hard and you miss that 365 days 300 hours into anything think about it bible study uh learning a new language learning a new instrument 300 hours you'd be at least decent at it and so what what that means is that where the difficulty is is in finding a consistent routine that's the secret of every successful person at anything they have a routine and they are consistent they are consistent and so there's a problem we have more and more in as our generations go on where we 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 are always looking for something exciting or there's a general dissatisfaction with anything that is slow and steady right it, it must be now or it must be fast or it must be it must get our blood pumping like oh my god <laughs> and of course we have a lot to blame i mean you this is not the place to talk about that at length. Even just social media on its own. The whole point of our interaction with our phones is to create a certain form of addiction where we constantly need that gratification. That is literally the psychological design between um, behind infinite scrolling where every time you swipe down, there's new content. And so your brain is always stimulated. And so you get into the real world where there's no, in quotes, new content. And you have to keep doing the same thing and it becomes very difficult that's why many people now it's hard to focus on any one thing for a long period of time because we are training ourselves not to be satisfied with that kind of lifestyle and so i want to encourage everyone here or everyone that's listening to this if you want to see changes this year if you haven't already have a well structured routine realize that because you have your routine doesn't mean the energy will be there every time. it will be it will probably get boring at so or difficult or uncomfortable at certain points in the year but that is where you're going to see growth that is where you're going to see growth so if you want to get better in your work with god have a routine a certain time of devotion where you pray for a certain number of hours sorry <laughs> the ah man of god where you pray for a while and you study for a while if you want to get better at a certain skill have a certain time even if it's 30 minutes a day 30 minutes three times a week where you're going to do this for this length of time for this length of time whatever you want whatever you want to see yourself improving in december if you've not created a routine around it it's not going to happen so that's what i want to encourage everyone right as you start the year review your routines every day like have have a certain idea of how my week is supposed to look for the most part and plan your life around that then you can start saying okay okay even if you're not seeing results i'm getting better i'm getting better i'm getting better i'm getting better all right so i hope that helps <laughs> happy new year once again and let's start first timothy first timothy first timothy first timothy all right 
So get your Bibles, get your notepads, get your writing materials. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. As usual, before we start any book of the Bible, we need to know who's writing. Who is he writing to? Why is he writing or she? If there's a she. And what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? Very clearly, just by reading, even if it's just the first chapter, we already know what First Timothy is for. Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy. Who is Timothy? Timothy is someone that Paul literally handpicked and has accompanied Paul through his ministry or missionary journeys to the point where Paul is also, I'm sorry, Timothy now, is also a leader in the church. I'm going to talk about that. And so, for instance, in verse 3, 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. That they teach no other doctrine. And so, very simply put, Paul has started a church in Ephesus. As usual, or as anything where human beings are involved, things aren't going quite as planned because now there are people in that church, leaders in that church, that are teaching false teachings. And Paul sends Timothy as a representative to stand or to, to, to bring about order in the church. We're going to see that through order in doctrine. We're going to see it order in leadership order in um, generosity, order in conduct, just restore order to the church. And so, like I said last week in the broadcast message and today, even if you don't think you are called to pulpit ministry, there is a lot to learn from these books. We're going to talk about, for instance, next week um, or maybe the week after, things about like women being teachers of, or being pastors or being ministry gifts can a woman actually be a pastor is it biblical how do we explain first timothy 2 verse 12 i do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man is paul a misogynist as many critics have said or are there things is this god's intention for the for the for the order of the church are there things we are missing we're going to talk about qualifications for an elder, qualifications for a deacon. And we're going to examine that phrase. God doesn't call the qualified. <laughs> he qualifies the called. I think I've said it here before. I don't entirely agree with that statement. I understand the heart of the statement and that is true. But the statement in itself, read plainly, is not true. There are qualifications before you can serve in the house of God. And Paul devotes an entire chapter to let you know that God calls the qualified. <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about ministry in general. Ministry in general. We're going to talk about instructions for the church. We're going to talk again about false teachings and what, what should be our response. So there's a lot to talk about whether you are you see yourself being an actual, in quotes, pulpit minister or a spiritual leader in the church or not, right? But that's the idea. Paul sends Timothy, I can't come right now. Go set things in order. Go set things in order. 
go set things in order and when we look at the story of timothy it's actually a beautiful one because i don't know how familiar we are for instance if you go to Acts 16 Acts 16 verse 1 Acts 16 verse 1 it says then he talking about paul he came to derb and lystra and behold a certain disciple was there meaning he was already saved whose name was timothy right timothy was already saved when paul met him it says the son of a certain jewish woman believed but his father was greek we don't know if the father was saved or not most likely not but at least we know the, the mother was jewish and she was saved and as a result timothy was saved we talked about that in first corinthians where it talks about the wife or the husband or one party being able to influence the spiritual destinies of the children even if the other party isn't saved um we talked about it in first peter as well how one party can save the other through their conduct and their lifestyle then he goes on he says in verse 2 act 16 verse 2 he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at lystra and iconium so it's not as if when paul met him timothy was was not doing anything right this is someone who already the church recognized that this is a faithful follower of christ and it 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 speaks to your christian testimony where it's not it it reinforces that thing we always say that christianity is not just between you and god if truly you are doing what you ought or you are walking with christ there should be a resounding testimony to in in the in the mouths of everyone around you whether believers or unbelievers and so for instance in Acts 6 um, where where they needed to pick out people to help with the distribution of food where the first deacons were appointed what did they say it says look amongst you the apostles didn't say oh let's pray maybe there's something hidden Acts 6 verse 3 it says brethren look out amongst you people of good reputation full of the holy spirit and wisdom so there is a sense in which as a believing community of christ if you are full of the spirit we would know if you are devoted to christ we would know if we do not know it's not because you are hiding it it's because it's not there it's not there there is just something about zeal i mean the literal word means to boil there's something about fervency there's something about radical commitment to christ that cannot be hidden and that's what jesus would say things like you are a city set on a hill right you are a city set on you can literally you cannot hide if you are walking with and in christ there is a there's it just shows it just shows this is not even about oh you have corporate ministry you started it no 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 if you love the lord an easy way to think about it as everyone here right now is listening to the sound of my voice think about a believer you know that is fervent names will start to come to mind names will start to come to mind did they come to tell you ah simply i'm a fervent i'm a fervent christian i want you to know that i'm a fervent christian no <laughs> no there's just a way they carry themselves there's just a passion for god that they cannot keep to themselves Right, you you see things like oh the word was shut up in my bones. I couldn't keep quiet. I couldn't keep quiet. There's just something about zeal. It's like again boiling water. It just makes noise. 
it's there you cannot you can't if water is boiling you will know the bubbles every it's it's not it's not like you will know that this is hot water right it shows it shows and so even before paul met timothy again i'm saying this so that when we get to god calls the qualified or god does not call the qualified you would understand even in paul choosing timothy as a worthy um uh follower or someone to take under his wings timothy was not just there this was someone who was saved who was already having a good reputation in his local assembly in his local assembly and so paul was like "Ah, this would be a great asset to ministry please follow me verse 3 follow me follow me so that is the story of timothy we see something similar in second timothy 1 2 timothy 1 verse 5 we have a little just a very small glimpse into timothy's salvation story second timothy 1 verse 5 when i call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you which dwelt first in your grandmother lois your mother eunice and i'm persuaded is in you also and so here we see how timothy got saved and how he had been discipled his grandmother was saved she got her mother um, timothy's mother or her daughter saved and from there timothy also got saved and here we see how powerful discipleship is especially within the family especially within the family don't underestimate especially if you're listening to this right now maybe your parents didn't do the best job training you in the word of god that's fine but you as you are now maybe in your 20s maybe in your 30s 40s wherever you are do not underestimate how important your role as a parent could mean for the discipleship of your children don't underestimate it i know many times one of the biggest which is actually invalid and as i'll go on to explain attacks against christians or let's say you go out to evangelize and you're like oh you are only a christian because you were born into a christian home i'm sure we've heard that statement before like ah no they are muslim because we're born in south in the middle east what do you expect oh you're a christian just because if you're not born into in lagos nigeria or in tennessee um us you will probably not be a christian it's true that's probably true right if i was born into a muslim family in the middle east in qatar i'll probably be a muslim probably but it doesn't say anything about the validity of the message that's like saying oh you only know two plus two is four because you were born into a house that taught you that two plus two is four yes that is true but it doesn't change the fact that two plus two is four it's it's i don't want to get into apologetics per se but it's called like the fallacy of origin where you assume that the origin of something determines its validity so for instance that oh just because i was born in a christian home christianity doesn't hold any ground it's just subjective no yes because i was born into a christian home that's a stronger reason for why i ended up christian but that doesn't have anything to do with whether christianity is right or wrong the same way you don't say oh he was born into a home where his parents believed the earth was flat that's why he believes the earth is flat so let's just leave him 
right he's a victim of circumstance no you go and correct the person that oh the earth is not flat the earth is round right so it it yes they might have a point i might be christian because i was born into a christian home but that has nothing to do with whether christianity is true or not let us evaluate the message on its claims i hope that makes sense right i hope that makes sense but then again there's nothing to be ashamed of in being born into a home or in saying that oh i am currently i am saved because my parents discipled me that is god's ideal that is god's ideal to raise up godly children to raise up godly children i remember just to deviate a bit i remember um i'm sure we all we've like we've heard about salvation stories oh how did you get saved or you like before you got to christ and you hear some people ah before jesus captured my heart i was a cultist i had killed five people i drank blood <laughs> right i had done this and i was like wow and says one day i was i was on my way and a light just shone from heaven <laughs> and i you're now the modern day but i felt my knees and i just started crying and crying and crying and right there I stopped smoking, I stopped drinking, I stopped sleeping around, I left the court, and now I'm a pastor. Glory to God. And everyone screams. And everyone's like, wow. <laughs> right? On one hand, it, it's, it's amazing, right? I'm not taking anything away from that. To see how the power of God can reach out to the depths of sin and still bring that person to, 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 to saving grace. And like, wow, God is incredible. And then I pass the mic to you. Oh yeah, so you see, what's your own salvation story? I say, ah, you know, when I was four, <laughs> I used to say my parents are pastors. I go to church every Sunday. <laughs> I have competed. I have competed in many Bible studies, and I have won all of them. <laughs> I can't even actually remember when I got saved. I have never done anything bad. <laughs> the highest was when I went to Body House. And I started listening to secular music. But when I got to university, I changed. That's your own story. And everybody, you now start to feel bad. Why don't, why haven't I done things in the world? Who can relate? I used to be like, I played lockdown. I don't have any, I don't have any sad story. Well, I mean, I, like I don't have a gruesome past. Right? I was, my prayers are pastors. I'm born. And that's, that's how I am. Saved from the mother's womb right and you start to feel like oh i wish me too me too i wish i had a story to tell and i want you to realize if that is you or that is still you please um rid yourself of that mentality for many reasons exactly for many reasons number one god's ideal to start with you, literally what you are saying is that you would you wish you were deeper in sin before getting saved please rid yourself of that mentality yes the story might be beautiful it might touch the hearts of many but god's ideal is that we never even have a past how many of you want your children to have a past before god touches them of course not was not god's ideal is that when a family gets saved from that point on anyone born into that family stays saved because 
the parents will do a good job of discipling, of teaching, of correcting. Yes, ultimately, it still rests on the shoulders of the individual to, to, to make a conscious decision to receive the sacrifice of Christ. But there's a lot that as a parent you can do. There's a lot. Many of us, the reason we are struggling with consistency and devotion is because our parents did not do daily devotion at home. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. For some of us, it could be something else, right? Ideally, ideally, God's plan and purpose for his church is that anyone born into a Christian community just carries on that trajectory of discipleship. There is nothing to feel bad about by not having a super dramatic Christian story. There's nothing. In fact, you should be grateful to God that you never really strayed as far into sin before he called you to himself. Who knows the effects? There are some people that the effects of their lives before they met Christ still haunts them till today. Yes, they are forgiven. Yes, they are at peace. But the consequences of some of their decisions can still affect them till now. And so don't be, don't, don't be satisfied <laughs> with your salvation story. I think that's the summary of the whole thing. If you were born into a Christian home like Timothy, it doesn't look like Timothy had a past. That's fine. In fact, thank God. Be grateful to God because that is the ideal. That you knew God. How do you say? From a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. If that is your story, be grateful. Because that is God's ideal. And thank your parents. If you've never thanked them till now, after today, send them a, after this teaching, send them a message. Mommy, daddy, thank you for raising me in the way of God. Thank you. Amen. Amen. All right. So that is Timothy. What was your standard good guy, good boy, born into a Christian? Well, at least his mother. Raised in the way of the Lord. Young guy, but fervent about God. Standard guy. <laughs> The standard boring guy that the streets of Twitter don't like. Christian brothers. Abi is a standard Christian brother. Brother Timothy. <laughs> that is Timothy. <laughs> and then, not only did Paul calls him, right? And Paul is like, follow me. Imagine if Paul says, just be going there. <laughs> I would leave everything and just follow. <laughs> now that I know. Maybe then it might not be easy because you never... If you look at the story of Paul's life, if Paul says, follow me, yes, you'll be happy, but just know you're about to suffer. As Paul is shipwrecked, you'll probably be on that ship. As armed robbers came to attack him twice, you'll probably be there. <laughs> As they beat him, they would have beaten you too. So it's not, it's not all glamour. Ah, this man has called me his son. <laughs> it wasn't as easy as it looked. But my point is, now we see Timothy has matured to the point where Paul is able to say, I'm sending you to a city to do what I would have done. To do what I would have done. And that is the goal of mentorship. That is the goal of growth. That is the goal of discipleship. Maturity. We see it in Ephesians 4. Till we all come. Till we all come to the fullness. Till we all come to the fullness. That's the goal. We see it in Hebrews 5. That by now, Hebrews 5.12, it says, you guys have learned so much. By now, you ought to be teachers. It says, but you still need someone to teach you the very first elements. The goal of growth, the goal of spiritual mentorship. We see the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. 
commit to faithful men who would be able to what? Teach others also. Spiritual growth should be replicable. The goal of maturity is such that you will be able to make others mature. And so if you've been following God for a while now, and it's, you still feel like, oh, if, it, if someone gets saved now, I don't know what to do with them. There's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. If you've been attending JTT at least since 20, when? 2021. Two years. And you can't teach somebody basic Christian doctrine. There is a problem. Is a problem like Timothy for every single one of us? The goal of discipleship is to attain a point of maturity where we are able to disciple others also in conduct, in devotion, and definitely in doctrine. And that's why, as we're going to see, one of the qualifications for both elders and deacons is that they must be apt to teach. They must have built a confidence in the word of God, both through time, through meditation, and through application, where they can replicate spiritual truths in the minds of other people. In the minds of other people. And so if you don't feel like you're at a point where you can do that, maybe, maybe it's just that you're shy. Hopefully that's even it. But if it's a genuine lack of ability, check it. You've not been growing as you should. You've not been growing as you should because that is one of the biggest goals. In fact, that is how Christianity is built. It is biblical truth or doctrine passed down from generation to generation. Amen. So very important. So now Timothy is so mature that Paul is sending him to to go oversee a church. To go oversee a church. To go oversee a church. And what is the major goal to address false teachings? First Timothy 1 verse 3, amongst many things. And I, I, I want to say this as a caveat as we go on in the course of Timothy, Timothy Titus. You're going to see, for instance, so Paul is writing a letter to a young minister. What we are going to see is his emphasis. Remember I taught you at the very first teaching that one of the biggest reasons why expositional bible study what do i mean by that reading the text as opposed to maybe choosing a topic both are very good and very necessary but one thing that reading texts do is that it helps shape your emphasis it helps shape your emphasis because something might be true but it might not be true to the right amount the same way you can say oh i eat protein i eat carbs i eat fiber I get my vitamins. How much carbs do you actually get, sir? And how little protein? (laughs) Or how much protein and how little carbs? When we say something is a balanced diet, like I always say, it's not just that it is the right things that are there. It is that they are there to the right amount. And so you're going to see, as you read the episodes, for instance, a certain emphasis. There are certain things that if you truly read the epistles, in terms of priority and emphasis, they would rank different. Of course, the gospel will be the biggest emphasis. Conduct will be right after. Before we start to talk about a few other things. 
And so, for instance, like I gave in the first example, I could perhaps spend 10 months. Let's say this is a healthy church. If it's a deficient church, it's a different case altogether because I would want to emphasize what is lacking. If it's a healthy church and I spend 10 months teaching on financial favor and then two months on actually the gospel and loving your brother and walking in love, there's a problem. Nothing I might say that year might be inaccurate. But by emphasis, I am creating an unbalanced diet in the minds of my audience. Does that make sense? And so it's not just about the content. There is something about emphasis that a sound biblical student also bears in mind. It's not just what. There's to to what extent. (laughs) To what extent. Amen. And so, again, going back, I said that there are false teachers, there are false teachings spreading around. And one thing I want to, to clear out is because when we start conversations around doctrine, it's very easy to now start looking at anyone you know that isn't getting it right in the place of doctrine and then you look down on them. That is not my goal. That is not my goal. I've made that dichotomy before between false teachers and false teachings. I think we talked about it in Philippians. And I said that at the end of the day, a false teacher, what rules him off entirely beyond just his message, even though his message is probably the biggest sign that this person is a false teacher, it's the motive. The motive. It's hardly ever to glorify God and to build up the church. That's a false teacher. Their motives are selfish, as we're going to see in Jude or 2 Peter 2. It says their God is their belly. It says they, 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 they simply teach licentiousness as an excuse for grace because that is what they delight in. And so their judgment has been placed upon them even before now. That's a false teacher. His motive is not pure. However, it is possible that someone is not a false teacher, meaning they sincerely love God and love his people, but they might not get it right in terms of doctrine. And scripture gives us different ways of handling both parties. And so, you don't see someone who you know genuinely loves the Lord. The person has followed the Lord faithfully for years. But because the person is not getting it right in the place of doctrine, you condemn the person. That is immaturity. That is immaturity. And it shows that you have a lot to learn right yes we can teach the word of god even if it contradicts the message of perhaps prevailing teachings we can stand on the truth of on the integrity of the word of god we can advocate for true doctrine but be careful that you do not drag people down that are actually sincere followers of christ simply because they for whatever reason have not learned as much as you have we correct in love if 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 whoever the person is is not within your your circle or is not accessible for you to correct in love leave them pray for them just pray for them pray for them don't condemn them because you at a certain point i mean we see it for instance right in apollos zealous <laughs> man of god but he was ignorant 
and they simply they didn't say ah, false teacher false this one is here to divide the body i remember how i was for instance when i first started to know and i was so angry i'm like how can this be what the word of god says and i'm not hearing it anywhere what is wrong with all these people what are we hearing in our i was very upset and i took some of the hunger to the streets of facebook that year <laughs> then ah uh, uh, <laughs> hey, hey oh my god i mean we still see it on twitter today and all of that but there's a better way of having conversations amongst ourselves especially if we all genuinely love god there's a better way you can hold fast to the integrity of the truth of god's word and still love an ignorant believer amen i just wanted to put that out there so that as we start to talk about false teachers false teachings you don't start to think of names that you shouldn't think of right it's very important all false teachers or pretty much every false teacher will most likely teach false doctrines but not everyone teaching false doctrine is a false teacher especially if it's a non-essential or if it's not as pertaining to the gospel because it could still be important but it's not related to the gospel amen and so as we're going to start this book we're going to see a lot of practical instructions we're going to see a lot of a lot of uh things to keep in mind and i just hope that as we go on first timothy second timothy and titus we're going to leave these three books being more mature believers when it comes to doctrine leadership or even how to think about a church whether or not you're going to pastor one amen thumbs up are we ready to start if anything i've if everything i've said makes sense give me a thumbs up <laughs> and let's get right into it Ah, only one okay two three four okay <laughs> awesome good 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 all right let's start <laughs> so we haven't started yet ah well ah, this is not this you should not be surprised now <laughs> all right first timothy one verse one let's go i'm reading from the nkjv it says introduction paul an apostle of jesus christ by the commandment of god our savior and the lord jesus christ our hope to timothy a true son in the faith grace mercy and peace from god our father and jesus christ our lord of course we've talked about this in the opening of almost every pauline episode paul an apostle of jesus we talked about who an apostle is please listen to ephesians if you need any recap um i want to avoid repeating certain things we've gone through already um of course when it says by commandment of god our savior we talked about it in galatians how paul was called to ministry not necessarily by his own will but by the choosing of god um and then he writes to timothy a true son in the faith because he is someone that he has spent years discipling and teaching right he has discipled and taught him for years so he can say timothy my son it refers to discipleship to discipleship right grace mercy and peace from god our father and lord we've talked all about that let's let's just get right into it verse 3 as i urged you when i went into macedonia remain in ephesus that you may charge 
some that they teach no other doctrine. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Very clear. Timothy's primary reason for staying in Ephesus is to ensure that there is only one message that is taught. As we've talked about many, many times, the word doctrine. Well, here it's it's a compound word, but it's what I ask for. It's teaching, teaching teaching so when it says no other doctrine is heterodidactical and it means another teaching and it just already shows you that the message of christianity for many of us we probably grew up hearing things like oh um there could be many interpretations there could be many truths we see it here directly teach no other meaning if it's not what i thought that's what paul is saying if it's not what I taught this church at Ephesus, disregard it. If it's not what I taught about Jesus, about his work, disregard it. It goes to show you the nature of Christianity. It is, it is such a, it, it is literally a fixed system of teachings. A fixed system of teachings. And so we're not given the flexibility that a lot of people assume we have to get flexible with the word of god you could say oh as i was just reading one day the holy spirit ministered to me does that happen of course it does but what exactly did the holy spirit minister to you say oh wow i just saw this book in a way i had never seen it before be careful be careful if what you mean is that it was something true that you had not being conscious of thumbs up to you that's beautiful if what you mean is another interpretation to the text be very careful christianity is one message one truth one system of teachings and so we might all vary in 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 the depth of revelation we might all vary in how well the truth of God's word has saturated our minds. But what we must not vary in is the interpretation of texts. We must not. Of course, because we don't really have clear apostolic teaching passed down beyond epistles, there are certain portions where we might disagree. And so there will be some people that feel that women need to wear head coverings when they appear before God, in quotes. There are some people that feel it's not necessary. And we might have debates. Fortunately, it's not essential. So that's that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that one of us is wrong. Right? We, we should not deceive ourselves and say, oh, if it works for you. No, no, no. One of us is wrong in the interpretation of that text. You can best be sure. But thank God, that text is not crucial to our salvation. My point is, as far as interpretation goes, there is truth. And our goal whether you are charismatic, whether you are this, whether you are that, whether you have this view of our salvation, whether you have this view about the gifts of the Spirit, our goal is to find truth. To find truth. Amen. So it goes on. It says, they should not teach any other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. 
So again, we see that one of the biggest signs of false teachings or unnecessary teachings is that it doesn't edify. It only causes arguments. It only causes arguments. He talks about fables. Fables referring to like stories, superstitions, anything that may not necessarily be true and distracts us from the word of God. Oh, how do you think this and this? And you start to say, ah, this is what I think about it. We don't have time for that. <laughs> it is, you're distracting us. What does the word say? I'm not asking you what you think. I'm not asking you to tell me a fancy story. What does the word of God say about this issue? Not only that, he talks about endless genealogies. And as we're going to see, this applies mostly to Jewish, false Jewish teachings, right? If you've read the story of Acts well, well enough, you'd remember that Paul's biggest hurdle was that there were many times Jewish, in quotes, teachers coming to every city he goes to to disregard the message of Christ. Ephesus was no, was no exception. And so even here, he talks about genealogies. Why does he say endless genealogies? Of course, if you read the Old Testament leading into the Gospels, one of the most notable things you're going to see is genealogies. And this begat this. I don't know if you guys did that. Part of, uh, for those of you that didn't have passed. <laughs> I'm just joking. But if, let's say you were raised in a church and your church did like Bible quizzes and you had to learn the genealogy in Matthew. And so they can ask you, who begat Ahishaphat? I say, I, I know it is this person that begat. That is, that is what Paul is referring to. Not the Bible quiz, right? But what Paul is referring to is, ah, what Paul is referring to is that there are some of these people that have gotten so stuck up in genealogies and it doesn't edify. Why is that the case? I talked about it in Hebrews. Why were there genealogies in the Bible in the first place? Why were they writing this begat this, this begat this? Why? Am I? When, let's say you're doing your Bible in a year if you've started, and I'm going to talk about that if we have the time. If not, we'll just continue next week. And you're like, ah, oh God, why do I care how many sons, what their names are, and who they begat? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? very very simple answer and i'll give a couple the first reason why genealogies were important was because the promise the promised seed was given to a people it was given to a people all through the old testament what you see is clear israelite identity and the reason it was a big deal was because these were this was the nation that God had set apart for himself. And so it was important to them that they knew who was who. And so for instance, you would see when David goes before Goliath and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He was insulting him. That you are not even second, you are not part of us. You are not, you are not part of the covenant family of God. How dare you speak against our God? I will kill you. Say, <laughs> so you, you. I will kill you. <laughs> right? Genealogies were to trace the children of promise. Another reason, it was to trace the Levitical priesthood. And so, for instance, we know that only Levites could serve in the temple. Only Levites could serve to carry stuff, to wash stuff. They didn't have land. And so, we needed to know 
who are the Levites? You trace it down. Same thing with the high priest. It was meant to be the Aaron, the line of Aaron until a lot of things happened. <laughs> but we trace it down as well. Same thing with the kings. We need to trace the succession of kings. We trace it down. But the biggest reason, theologically, why genealogies were important was because there was a Messiah to come. Abraham said in your seed, sorry, God told Abraham, in your seed all the nations will be blessed. God told David, I would raise a ruler from you that will rule the nations. His scepter would be everlasting. And so there is a sense in which we knew, or the Jews knew, that there was a promised Messiah that was to come from a certain line. And so we need to trace. We need to know who is this person going to be. But what does that then mean? It means that as soon as that person comes, the genealogies are no longer relevant. That's what it means. As soon as the promised Messiah comes, I don't need to know who was born by who after him because he has come. Galatians talks a lot about this. If you haven't listened to Journey to Galatians, I beg you, please listen to it. But once the promise, that's, have you noticed? Once Jesus came, nothing in Acts about nobody cares who gave birth to in Acts. Nothing in the episodes about birthrights and genealogies. Because through that one seed, everyone comes in by faith. Everyone is included in the genealogy of Christ through faith. It's no longer a thing of birth. Thank God Jesus had no biological children. And so if you want to know how the genealogy continues, look at the lineage of faith. It's nothing that we write down and say, oh, this begat, this begat. No, no, no. And so for many Jewish teachers of the time, it wasn't something that they were ready to accept, right? How can you say our genealogies, this and this, all of a sudden is just by faith? What do you mean by that? So if I'm a Jew, it doesn't, do you get, it was a big deal. You spent your entire life tracing genealogies and now you're saying Jesus has come. It's no longer necessary. And so there were still people who came into the church and were still placing importance on who is, big, who is, who is giving birth to who. And Paul is like, it is only causing dispute. It's unnecessary. It is unnecessary. It is unnecessary. And so one of the biggest ways to discern between healthy teaching and unhealthy teaching is to look at the effects it has in the, in the minds of men. Like Paul said, these fables and endless denials, they only cause arguments. They don't build up in faith. So true Christian teaching will always build a person up. And the same thing that we can say about non-essentials, to a certain extent, we can seek to grow in these areas. We should at least have a mind that is willing to explore the truth. But we should not let it distract us from what matters. We shouldn't. There are certain conversations that if we don't agree on the basic, I would not waste my time arguing with you on that. Head covering, when we still have to talk about sin and the gospel, wear your head covering. Let's, 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 let's cover the more important things. So who gets to head covering? <laughs> Women should not wear trousers. No, Allah. At least believe in what Jesus has done and then we'll get to trousers or not. Right? Good Christian teaching. The goal must be godly edification, which is in faith. He goes on in verse 5 to say the very same thing. 
the purpose of the commandments, verse 5, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That is the goal of Christian teaching. To stir up love, to stir up a good conscience. That is the goal. Love, to unite us in the love of God and in the love with one another. So wrong teachings, useless, they only promote strife. But proper and sound doctrine will unite us in love. That, that's, that is literally what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say, from which some haven't strayed, that's from the truth of sound doctrine, have turned aside to idle talk. Have turned aside to idle talk. This doesn't necessarily say anything about their salvation. And we're going to see this a lot in First Timothy. When it says they've strayed, it doesn't mean they don't believe in, in the gospel anymore. It simply means as far as the teachings of Christ has, are concerned, they have left sound doctrines to start having ridiculous arguments, meaningless conversations. We're going to see how Paul deals with them probably next week because with the way the time is, I don't think we're going to finish chapter 1 today. But I'm going to dwell on verses 7 to 11. I'm going to read it, explain it, and we'll probably call it a wrap for today. Right? It says, they are these people, they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, the law was not made for a righteous person. <laughs> Read on. But for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the sinner, the unholy, the profane, mothers of fathers, the poor, from zero to hundred. Where did we where did we come from? Where are we going? Mothers of fathers for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Look at that verse. So, first of all, Paul says that these people, they actually want to be teachers of the law. He says, but they do not understand what they say or the things they affirm. And that's a big deal. Because... What that means is that these people probably read the law. I want you to take note of that. They want to be teachers of the law, and so they probably know it to a good extent. But they don't what? Understand it. And it's a very, very vital distinction that in our day and age, we need to make. Reading the Bible does not always equate to growth in truth. For instance, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was on his way to Ethiopia, Acts 8, I believe. And Philip runs up to him and asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And he says, how will I understand? He says, is it, is it, uh, is it talking about him? He asks Philip, is he talking about himself or someone else? So Acts 8 verse 30, let's go there. I actually want to read that because it's going to be very important to what I'm about to say. Acts 8 verse 30, it says, Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? <laughs> it's good you are reading, but do you understand? What is his reply? He says, ah, don't I understand? The Holy Spirit is going to explain it to me. No. 
It says, how can I accept someone guides me? How can I accept someone guides me? It is a big part of Bible study that we, many of us, not us here, I mean just generally in the body, because we have personal Bibles, we've we've taken that to mean that Bible study is personal. That's not true. We're going to go on to talk about that, but let's read on. How can I unless someone guides And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. In verse 34, he, he, Eunuch asked, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say? Is it himself or some other man? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus. We see that. The guy was reading, which is beautiful. It shows that his heart is in the right place. He's reading the word of God. But he doesn't understand. How would understanding come? Through the teaching of Philip. Through the guide of Philip. So that now he holds Isaiah and he he understands. Oh, Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He says, how will I know? Unless someone guides me. I'll read a few more texts and then I'll explain even more. For instance, in John 3 verse 10, John 3 verse 10, Jesus comes to talk about the born-again experience. Let's go there. John 3 verse 10. John 3 verse 10. So, Jesus said, unless you are born of water and of spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said, How can these things be? Look at Jesus' reply in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? Or in modern day translations, are you not a teacher of Israel? And yet, you don't know these things. You know the text. You don't understand how there is a new birth experience. Don't you understand Ezekiel? I'll take away the stony hearts. I'll put in them a heart of flesh. Don't you understand Jeremiah 31? I'll write the law on their hearts. All who know the Lord. He knew the scriptures, but he did not know or understand the scriptures. We see something very similar yet again. Matthew 22. Let's go there. This was when they were doing bus with Jesus. I'll ask you a question. You ask me a question. <laughs> Matthew 22 from verse 29 to 30, 33. We'll just read on. But Matthew 22. So let's start from verse 23. Matthew 22, 23. It says, that same day, Sadducees who claimed there's no resurrection, they came to him and asked, teacher, if a man dies, he has no children, the brother marries, no children, and then they keep marrying, keep marrying, keep marrying, up to the seventh, and then the woman dies. It says, in the resurrection, whose wife would she be? What did Jesus tell them in verse 29? Very important. Matthew 22, 29. It says, Jesus answered them, you are mistaken. Why? Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. These are, these are not, this is not, uh, I got saved yesterday. The people that are asking Jesus, they are leaders. They are people that have probably all their life, all they've done is read the Old Testament. 
And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You've been reading, you don't understand. You've been reading, you don't understand. We see something similar with the Pharisees as well. In case you do not know, these are, they've memorized the Torah by heart. These are people that can freely talk about the Old Testament. Respected religious leaders of their time. So they are not babies. We're doing Bible in a year. This one, they've done Bible in a year every year, several times a year. <laughs> they are not children. And look at verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do, you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And he said, uh, and they said to him, he's the son of David. So they were like, ah, the Messiah is David's son now. Uh-uh. We, 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 me, me, you no longer have been saved. David's son, I know that. Jesus asked them, how come David in the spirit called him Lord? If he's his son, meaning and someone that will come from the line of David, which was true, they were wrong. But they didn't understand that he'll be more than just the son of David. He'll be the son of God. And so he said, if it's, if it's that simple, why does David call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, I believe that's Psalm 110, I think verse 1, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He says, if David can call him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46, no one was able to answer him. Nor from that day did anyone dare question. And so we see people that have grew up, grown up, rather, grew up, <laughs> their entire lives immersed in the biblical text. But they did not understand. Why? Because they had been taught to interpret it a different way. They had been taught to interpret it a different way. And so, every time they read, it only reinforced their ignorance. It's that, it's that same thing where I remember when I first, I listened to, was it maybe a TED talk or something? Like, when we, that phrase, practice makes perfect. Well, not necessarily. Practice perfects whatever you are practicing. If you play any instruments or if you've, let's say you, you've done stuff at the gym, but things that need form, that you, there's a certain way to go about it. Your instructor would always tell you, if you keep practicing with poor, let's say you're playing the keyboard, Daisy can teach us all about that. <laughs> and you're not playing it the right way. As you keep practicing, what would happen? You're just going to reinforce that wrong playing style. So you'll get better at the wrong thing. <laughs> so it's not enough to just say, oh, I'm practicing. How are you practicing? Oh, I'm reading my Bible. What exactly are you? Who is teaching you? Do you understand my point? Same thing with, oh, they say, oh, there's a certain way to squat, right? You, you have to move your body. If not, you're just going to reinforce wrong movements and you're going to get injured down the line. You're going to get injured down the line. If it's an instrument, if you reinforce the wrong motion, it's going to affect your dexterity as you go on down the line. So my point again is that even in those things, you don't just sit down and just keep practicing. Someone teaches you, oh, do this, don't do this. You correct yourself and that is what you are practicing. That is what you're practicing. That's what you're practicing. So it's practicing the right thing that actually makes perfect because you will be perfect at anything you practice, whether it's wrong or not. It's the same thing with Bible study. These guys had read the Bible all their lives, but they were not taught. They were not taught. And what does that show? From 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, there is a way to handle 
the Bible that does not necessarily come by just reading it. It says that they want to be teachers, but they don't understand what they are saying. It says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There is a way to use the law. That if you've not been taught, you would misuse it. You would misuse it. Again, it goes back to what I was saying for teachers. For there are sincere believers that do not understand the Bible. Why? They were not taught. Great devotional lives. But they were not taught. They are like the Ethiopian eunuch till this day. Asking, is he talking about himself? Or somebody else? Or somebody else? Or somebody else? And so for instance, let's say you've come into the year and you're like, wow. This year I will complete the Bible. I'll be honest with you. Not everybody should do Bible in a year especially if you're going to be reading parts of the bible you've not been taught i don't recommend it why is that again again <laughs> how was the bible read in the early church let's let's go back to the basics right no one really had a personal bible <laughs> there were not that many copies available in fact how many of them could actually even read all right and so what they knew to be biblical truth. For instance, we saw it in Luke 24. He said, Jesus, beginning at Moses, he expounded unto them the things in scripture concerning himself. We've talked about that. If you want to hear more, look for the bonus teaching that I did. It's still on the journey through the epistles on honor for the written word. There is a way to read the Bible. There are things that you should remember we said, they should teach no other doctrine, no other teaching, no other interpretation of the Bible. There is a way to read the Bible and you ought to be taught. And so we see, for instance, in Acts, Jesus will teach the, the apostles and then the apostles taught the church. Paul will teach Timothy. Timothy will go on to teach more people. Those ones will teach more people. And the goal is whatever you learned, teach others teach others teach others teach others and so for the average church goer in the early church everything they know to be true how did they learn it they were taught peter probably taught them or james or paul or an elder that had been taught by peter or james or paul or one of the apostles it was passed down it's kind of like that thing where you meet, um, you see in a movie, or actually there are people in real life, and you're like, oh, this is a family recipe that has been passed down for 10 generations. They didn't just wake up and say, ah, I want to bake cake. No. The mother, the first one, said, this is how you do it. She taught her daughter. The daughter taught the daughter. The daughter kept, and it was passed down. It was passed down. That is the message of Christ. It is passed down. It's not left for just whatever you think it means. And one of the reasons we see so much contradiction today in the body of Christ is because of unguided reading. The, just like the Ethiopian, you know, we say, how can I understand except someone guides me? But in our case, we feel no one needs to guide us. Me, the Holy Spirit, and the text is enough. And then we start to come up with all sorts of interpretations that lead to all sorts of movements, all sorts of teachings. It is passed down. There is a way to read. 
There is a way to understand Genesis. There is a way to understand the Torah. There is a way to understand the prophets. And I want to appeal. Be taught. Read the Bible in here if you want to. But bear at the back of your mind that if you are not sure what it means, just read it. Don't, don't build doctrine. Don't build inter- and which is which is why I ask us, so why are you reading it in the first place? Right? If it's that you're going to only reinforce things you know to be true. If you have questions, write it down and ask. Don't just run off and assume that reading alone is enough. No. Clearly, it was not enough for the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not enough for the Pharisees. It wasn't enough for um, the Sadducees. It wasn't enough for the, the false teachers of Paul's day. Some of them were even sincere. But they were not taught. Or they did not want to submit to apostolic teaching. And so what that means is that if there is any text you've not been taught biblically or you've not built a solid foundation on the truth of God's scripture, you don't understand it. That's what that's it's simply what it means. Simply what it means. Seek to be taught. That is how the early church grew. They were taught from one leader to the other, from one person to the other, from one generation to the other. Of course, in our time, we can't really, let's see, hold fast to, we can't really trace any clear lineage of apostolic teachings. Right? The Catholic Church may try to do so, but upon scrutiny, it's not true. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's not true. All right? And yes, we might be in a position now where there's no apostolic authority to enforce biblical interpretation. But there's still a lot we can do to at least get it mostly right. Mostly right. We don't have Paul or anyone that Paul taught to come and tell us, Paul, am I saying the right thing? But at least we can get it mostly right. So seek to do that. I'm saying all that to remind you that it's not enough to just read. Do you understand what you are reading? Because for years... You might, we, in fact, you, there are many examples of believers that every year have read the Bible, paid Genesis to Revelation, and have not really grown in theology. Why? They didn't understand what they are reading. They've not been guided. They've not been built up in the doctrine of Christ. In fact, if it's just Ephesians, Hebrews, and Galatians you were taught, it might be better than 10 years of personal Genesis to Revelation reading. If you are just taught properly. Many of you have that testimony. For some of you, this is not the first time you are reading your Bible. This might not even be the first time you are reading one of the books we've covered. But because you were guided or because you joined a good church, it just makes sense. It just makes sense. That is how God intended for it to be. Truth is taught. Amen. Let's go on. So, he says that the law is good if a person uses it lawfully. In the few minutes I have left, how do we use the law lawfully? What should be on our minds when we read, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal? What should be on our minds? I would answer that at the end. Oh, because I've taught on this so many times, I keep forgetting where I taught it. I don't think I've taught in JT, JT what the work of the Holy Spirit in personal study is. I would explain that at the end. Um, but yeah. Very good question. 
Um, what is the use of the law? For some, it is to tell people, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> For some, it is to say, thou shalt not shave the sight of your hair, young man. A woman shall not pertain. Where, sorry, where what pertaineth to man, and a man shall not pertain it. <laughs> shall not wear what to a woman. And in all of these things, they are wise truths. None of these laws are disregarded even today. You don't say, oh, there's a way to use the Lord, meaning I can kill. Meaning I can dress like a lady. I believe a guy should not dress like a lady. And a lady should not dress like a guy. But what does that mean? Is that what the law is for? Again, listen to Galatians. I'm going to talk about it, but not as much as I did in Galatians. So for instance, you come to the Sermon of the Mount. I want you to think through this with me. God is separating a group of people unto himself. And he gives them laws to guide and to govern their leading and um, their 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 life right to govern their life the word torah literally instruction teaching and so there are laws to guide their morality there are laws to guide their worship there are laws to guide their celebrations and festivals there are laws to guide even civil discourse if someone does this this is what you should do if someone steals this this is what you should do what end to what end did he give it to that as a, a a template for all generation to look at and say ah whatever god told uh, the israelites that's what he's telling us today and so if my child is rebellious i will stone him to death because i am a student of the law is that what he's saying no what was the law given for what was the law given for? We start to see glimpses in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5. And what Jesus starts to do, law by law, he says, you, you've heard that it, it says you shall not kill. It says, but I say to you, even if you harbor hatred, Odudua wanted to catch me, but I am greater. <laughs> A greater one lives in me. A greater than Odudua is here. <laughs> even if you harbor hatred, <laughs> For someone, um, it says you've committed murder in your heart. And you're like, ah, Moses not say that one now. <laughs> what is he <just> saying? <laughs> or it says you've heard, thou shalt not commit adultery. It says, but I say to you, even if you look at another man's wife lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. What was Jesus doing on that with the law? He was letting them know that beyond a change of action, what the law pointed to was a change of heart to teach them that sin is not first an act as much as it is a state of heart to teach them that as human beings what god is first and foremost interested in is in your heart and a person who truly understands the law will come to this conclusion that ultimately there's just so much that God expects of me that I really cannot do. I really cannot do. Why? Because my heart is not right with God. Jesus ended that teaching by saying, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. Do you know what that meant for the audience? 
the Pharisees were the standard of religious purity. These are people that they don't even interact with normal people on the streets. They walk around, they are washing their hands every time. They are doing this, they are doing that. They are always reading the Torah. They are, some of them are teachers. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness is greater than them, you can't see the kingdom. All of a sudden, he has condemned everyone. That is the point of the law. To show that what we need, including those Pharisees, was a change of heart. Because in truth, in truth, if they examined their own hearts, they would realize that they needed help. Paul talks about... Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's your answer tonight. <laughs> Paul talks about it in Romans 7. I really want to do these things. I can't. I can't. The Lord says, don't kill. All of a sudden, I want to kill. <laughs> this old wretched man that I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? Galatians says the exact same thing. Galatians 3. Galatians 3. It says, if anyone could be justified by the law, Christ died in vain. What was the purpose of the law? He says it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. What the law was to do was to set a standard of morality or to set a standard of divine relationship so high that it should make it clear that no human being is perfect in the sight of God. And so we need help. Where would that help come from? From the gospel. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to reveal human nature and to point to salvation in God. That's the purpose of the law. Meaning, anyone who looks to the law as a means through which they can do the right thing has already missed it from the start. Do you, do you understand? Because that's not why he was given in the first place. Yes, he was to guide. Yes, it is good in itself. The law in itself is good. It's a good standard for them. At least it was a good standard for the people of Israel at that point in time. And pretty much every moral law is still a good standard for us now. Right? However, the purpose of the law was to lead. Again, listen to Galatians 3. I thought about this, um, thought on this for a while. The purpose of the law was to reveal human weakness. So in the mouth of Jesus, whether you are Pharisee, Sadducee, commoner, to reveal human weakness and to point, to set our hearts in a position where we are like, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need help. And so you hear the gospel and boom, it all makes sense. That's the law. That's the law. That's the law. And so that's why in verse 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, as we round up, it says, the law was not made for a righteous person. But of course, we know that no one is righteous. But if someone was righteous, the law is not for them. The law is not for them. The law is not for them. It is for sinners. The law is for sinners. And what does he say? In um, verse, um, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel. The law is for sinners. It was given to reveal sin and unrighteousness. The law was given to reveal sin and to point a person to Christ. 
look at Galatians three. Maybe we'll just read a few verses, just so that there's a bit more context. But I, if you, if what I'm saying is not clear, listen to the teaching on Galatians. If anything, at least chapter three, right? So, for instance, we see in uh, Galatians three nineteen, what purpose does the law serve? Paul is answering it clearly. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Verse 21. Is the law against the promises of God? Certainly not. If there had been a law which could give life, righteousness would have come by the law. Verse 22. But the scriptures have kept everyone under sin that the promise of faith in Christ might be given to all those who believe. Before faith came, verse 23, we were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith that would be revealed. Verse 24. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Verse 25, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Very clear. The law was given to reveal the inadequacies of man in the light of a perfect God and to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel. And so, like Paul is saying, these people do not understand this. We're still going to read on in first Timothy. There are some that were teaching, don't get married. There are some that were teaching, don't eat this. And Paul is like, you've missed it. You still think the law or these genealogies are something to hold on to. You've missed Christ. All these things were to point to Christ. And so sound doctrine is an interpretation of scripture that is rooted upon Jesus and his finished work. I'll say that again. Sound doctrine is any interpretation of scripture rooted on the revelation of Jesus and his finished work. And so for these people, they were teaching the laws as things to do, probably things to try and attain, things to like, ah, and Paul is like, no. Yes, in Christ. And Galatians 5 and Galatians 6 talks at length about this. What does that mean? Does that mean as believers we cannot start killing? <laughs> or it doesn't matter what the law says? No. But it's a whole different mechanism at work. The law in itself was given to point us to Christ. And because they had not been taught, they were misusing the law. Hmm, what did I say? I said it on the fly. Uh, I think I said rooted in the revelation of Christ and his finished work. Is that what I said, guys? If that's what I said, please confirm in the chat. I did not write that down. But yes, I think any 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 interpretation of scripture rooted in the revelation of Christ and his finished work. Um, yeah. I think this is a good place to stop. Assignment, please listen to Galatians before next week. At least chapter 3. It would it would solidify, maybe chapter 3 and chapter 5, right? It would solidify what the law was actually for and how we should apply it to our lives today. And so for the man in Christ, the law is not, again, like we said, the law is not given for a righteous person. That's not, we don't look to the law to, to see who we are. No, we look to Jesus. Because if you look to the law, all you're going to see is sin. I should explain the righteousness of the Pharisees. I said, Jesus said, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees, you shall know by no means see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. What was he saying? If you follow the context of everything he taught on the Sermon of the Mount, he was simply teaching that true righteousness starts from the heart before it is seen in the actions. Because if you look at the Pharisees by their actions alone, you would think, Oh, yes, there's always a recording. I would talk, I would share that. Yes, there's a podcast on this. Um, hi, Victor. So, yes, um, 
what was I saying? Yes. That if you look to the Pharisees, and that's why it was a shock to the to the audience. Because if you look to the Pharisees, they are the standard of righteousness, right? They are the ones that pray when they should. They are the ones that do all the sacrifices. They are the ones that do all this, like do everything they should do. But again, that's the point. They are still doing that at the end of the day, true righteousness, the entire point of the teaching of the Sermon of the Mount, this is not journey through Matthew, but I wish it was, but I would have gone through at length. And this is what explains a lot of other things. But the goal of the Sermon on the Mount was to teach people, or Jesus was literally teaching them what Paul is doing now, how to use the law, was to teach them that God was first interested in a change of heart before a change of actions because if your heart changes your actions will follow your actions would follow and so for for the pharisees yes they were doing a lot of things on the outside but like we're going to see or, or if you've ever read the gospels and you've seen all the clashes between Jesus and pharisees their hearts were not in the right place and so jesus is calling for a righteousness that is more than actions but that starts from the heart. And so when he said, if unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, he's saying, unless you've been changed from inside out, which is still the purpose of the law, how does that happen? By the Spirit of God. How do you receive the Spirit? Faith in the gospel. Does that make sense? Anyone who had been taught properly the law would realize that the only way you can be changed, for instance, Moses said, said the same thing to them, that circumcise your hearts. Literally, this is not a jesus okay uh, it's not in jt i've not done this in jt i think that's why this is not something that started from jesus since moses ezekiel we've looked at that ezekiel talked about it isaiah jeremiah talked about it unless god changes their hearts israel will not follow god and so there was clear precedence that the only way man can truly be on god's good side in quote is through a transformation of the heart but we've seen that that cannot come from us and so all of the law is literally a promise of God's spirit to transform the human heart. Jesus is that fulfillment. That's what Jesus was teaching. That's literally all he was teaching. Because by the time he says, if you hate someone, you've, and he's like, ah. If you look at someone, you've got, I say, ah. So that means even if I, in my mind, I thought I was keeping the Ten Commandments, I wasn't because my heart was not perfect before God. So I need the gospel. And so what Jesus was doing was presenting a clear case on the fact that everyone has sinned, Romans 3, and everyone needs the transformation of God from inside out, not from outside in. That's that's literally what Jesus meant. Does that make sense, Delight, and everyone else? Yeah, thank you. All right, awesome. You're welcome. And so the, the other question, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in personal study? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in personal study? Um. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but can you also link it to um, Jeremiah 31, 34? Sure, 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 sure. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in personal study? Couple things. Number one is because whatever the role of the Holy Spirit is in our study will be the role of the Holy Spirit in the study of the people that have gone years um, before us. What was the role of the Holy Spirit when in the early church? <laughs> Since they didn't even have Bibles in the first place very simple it was to establish truths in the hearts of the people why are you why why are any of us saved because we have the spirit of god what does the spirit of god do in us it 
quickens us. It is what it, it is what literally has changed us and allows us to respond or receive the things of God. Yes, that's part of yes, it's recollection is part of establishing truth. And so if Paul teaches what Jesus has done, because you have the spirit of God, you can apply it and you can it actually means something to you. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians if you remember. 1 Corinthians uh, 1 and 2. Right, First Corinthians one and two: How the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit, and only by the spirit can we actually receive spiritual things. And so Paul would tell you that work out your salvation because God works in you both to will and to do. That's the spirit of God. The spirit of God is what allows us to respond to the word of God. The spirit of God is what 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 uh what helps us to hold on to truth, because again, Paul like. Like I said, just think about the early church. If you were in the early church, what would the Holy Spirit be doing? Is that as you are being taught every time you gather, you understand and you apply it to your life. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You understand and you apply it to your life. You understand and you apply it to your life. You understand and you apply it to your life. And so, when we read our Bibles now, is the Holy Spirit interpreting Scripture? Has that ever being the role of the Holy Spirit per se. Not necessarily. Can the Holy Spirit interpret or help in interpretation? Yes. But do we think that that is somehow different from being taught by someone? Do you understand what I'm saying? So for instance, we 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 find it hard to receive this in Bible study, but we it's very easy when you think about the gospel, which is where the work of the Holy Spirit starts. How did you get saved? Someone told you the gospel. Do you, do you get me? Or you read it somewhere. Or, like literally, it didn't come from within you. <laughs> you didn't just say, mm, Jesus died for my sins. Mm, Holy Spirit, thank you. I'm saved. No. It was external information. External information. External information. Whether through preaching or through reading or whatever means. And the Holy Spirit used that message to convict your heart of sin and you received him and you got saved. There and then we see the work of the Spirit of God. It's the same thing in Bible study. It's the same thing in Bible study. When we read, we're reading explanations. We're reading explanations. So for instance, maybe one reason why this can is very muddy is because the epistles in themselves are teachings, right? The epistles are actually explanations from the apostles. And so there is a sense in which if you just read the epistles, you are because it's the equivalent of you listening. So it's like Paul is talking to you. Do you get my point? Paul is explaining to you. The problem though is that for many of us, we've been raised in... In a, in a world with so many contrary interpretations that there's a lot of baggage we bring into the text. There's a lot of baggage we bring into the text. And so we've already been taught wrong such that when we read, many times we are building on wrong information already. And so we need to unlearn and learn. It is very difficult. It is possible. For instance, Martin Luther the father of the protestant movement 
right? The father of the Protestant woman. How did how did that happen? He just read Romans, and he's like, ah, what these people are doing? This is not it's not what this Bible is saying, no. And he kept reading, and he wrote an entire thesis and said, no, salvation is by faith. Paul said it. Paul said it. And so there is a sense in which, let's say, you read the Bible, you read Romans in NLT, and eventually you should you you probably say, oh, ah, but Paul said that. How do we know that? That's the problem. <laughs> Do you get? So you need right teaching to correct wrong. You can't. So that's like asking a fish what water is. It doesn't know. It was born and raised in water. Do you, do you get my point? And that's why I said teaching is important because for many of us, we were only introduced to a certain interpretation of the text that many times was probably not the most accurate. And it's until we started to explore other alternatives. And so there is a sense in which, just like the Bereans, right? Um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was reading the comments. Just like the Bereans, they heard what Paul said, but they still were able to go to the scripture and say, is this thing true or not? And so every good teacher's responsibility is to present the text to you. And then you say, ah, is it true or not? Is it true or not? Someone said this one means this. Another person said this one means this. Which one is more in accordance with the revelation of God and with the text? And you're absolutely right on you. It's not an easy... Doctrinal interpretation is not an easy field at all. Because there are so many interpretations, so many well-meaning people, right? And unfortunately, we don't exactly have Paul to send Timothy to tell us what is true. Do you understand my point? And so what we can do is with a sincere heart, always evaluate what we hear in the light of the written word. My job in JTT, for instance, is just to simply try and present the text as clearly. And that's why we are going to text so that I'm not going, I'm not hiding anything. To present the text as clearly as it looks, such that we can see. What, and it goes back to what I said again. Whatever you hold true, ensure it's grounded in the word of God. We've talked, for instance, when we talked about heaven and hell, that was a clear case of, I. this is what I thought growing up, but this is what the Bible actually says. So to a large extent, if you are educated <laughs> and you are saved, if you are, if you are simply pointed in the right direction, there are many things in the text that you can pick up, even if someone didn't explicitly tell you. So for instance, if someone says Isaiah 53 is about Christ and you start to read it, there are many things that will make sense from that point on. From that point on. If someone explains righteousness by faith, a lot of things in the epistles will make sense immediately. Like, immediately. But just because those fundamentals, we weren't exactly taught them growing up. It becomes very hard. It becomes very hard. And so yes, you're absolutely right. Let's pray for teachers, pray for pastors, Pray for anyone who handles the word of God because it is a delicate thing. And like Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly dividing the word of truth. May God help us. So the role of the Holy Spirit in Bible study, even now, right, is understanding and application. You're absolutely right. My point is simply, we oftentimes come with so many assumed interpretations that hinder 
that work of the spirit and so we need to be taught to unlearn or to learn in the first place does that make sense thumbs up oh yeah anyone else does it make sense is there anything i should go through again all right all right all right all right you're welcome you're welcome so i'm not saying do not read the bible on your own please that's not what i said i said uh ensure that you have been taught how to handle the bible or to handle whatever portion you are reading don't come assuming what the text means ask yourself actually that as i'm reading now have i do i actually understand this do i at least the 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 eunuch was honest enough to say i don't understand don't assume do you actually understand so jeremiah 31 34 it says no more shall every man teach his neighbor this will be the last question by the way um and every man his brother saying know the lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and their sins i remember no more i would advise you listen to my teaching on first john chapter 2 right first john chapter 2 i talked about this so for instance john tells the audience that the antichrist has there are many antichrists the antichrist is already here uh what does he say again um first john 2 from verse 18 to 27 it says i'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth verse 21 but you know the truth it goes on to say let what you've heard abide in you in verse 27 it says the anointing you've received abides in you and you don't need anyone to teach you and i asked a very simple question just reading in context what does john mean by you don't need anyone to teach you he's writing a letter teaching them so he would either be insane <laughs> or we don't understand what teach you means. Right? Imagine I'm teaching you and I'm saying, you don't need anyone to teach you, but I'm teaching you. <laughs> That's what John is saying in 1 John 2.27. What is he saying? He's simply saying, as pertaining to the revelation of God, who Jesus, if you read in context, and like I said, listen to journey through 1 John chapter 2, at least. As pertaining to who Jesus is and what he has done, the Spirit of God has convicted your heart of sin, of salvation, of righteousness. In that sense, in that sense, you know God. In that sense, you know God. But as pertaining to the truths of Christianity, as pertaining to building on, on that conviction, you need to be taught. Jesus said, go ye therefore and make disciples. Jesus the word make disciples literally go and teach people go and teach people and so when jeremiah says no one will need to teach their brother to know the lord because all will know the lord he's talking about a change of heart remember if you read in context he's talking about a change of heart that has received who god is that happens literally at salvation the day you got saved you knew the lord you knew the Lord. And so every Christian in that sense knows the Lord. Why would you know the Lord? Verse 7 and verse 34. Because I have forgiven their iniquities. Does that make sense? So knowing the Lord has nothing to do with um, the teaching of the truth of Christianity. It simply has to do with the revelation of God. based so Revelation of sin, revelation of God, revelation of forgiveness. Right? In the gospel, I 
I, I received the forgiveness of Christ and now I am a child of God. That is what it means to know God. Right? Ah, people are asking questions. <laughs> so, yes, we will answer that next week. That's not part of today. That's not part of today. Baptism, before next week, remind me next week, we'll start with that. But for baptism, we talked about it in First uh, Corinthians, I believe. First Corinthians, I think, chapter 1, actually. So you can listen to Journey Through First Corinthians, part 1. Or the place where Paul talks about not baptizing people. Um, I'll talk about it briefly next week, but we've talked about that already. Same thing, um, Oye, you can listen to, and everyone else that wants to hear about that, listen to First John chapter 2, right? We talked about what it means to know the Lord and why that's not an excuse for being taught. That verse alone makes it very clear. John is teaching you that you don't need anyone to teach you. <laughs> All right. So um, let's pray. We went a bit over time, but no wala. Um, let's pray. And then we'll call it a day. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the start of a new book, the start of a new year. Thank you for First Timothy. Thank you for the lessons we've learned even today about the integrity of your word, about the purpose of the law. And I, I just pray for every single one of us here that we grow to be mature believers who can handle your word with integrity and can teach others also. I pray that we are people who would inspire discipleship in the people we come across. And I pray, Lord, that even as we we've kick-started this year i pray that we 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 are consistent and we give ourselves to healthy routines in jesus name amen 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 um thank you delight for putting that in the chat yes i think everyone especially if you cannot remember or you weren't part of us galatians was our very first teaching so if you haven't listened to journey through galatians i beg you it would really bless you it would make everything we said in a few words about the law the purpose of the law it would make sense if you read galatians um if you listen to the teaching on galatians for teaching um listen to first john chapter two listen yes first john chapter two for baptism first corinthians chapter one um all right let's take our benediction um victor you're asking as usual uh following every teaching the recording is put out wherever you listen to podcasts apple Spotify. There would also be a Google link as well. It was put in the um, in the chat. If you want to be added to the broadcast list where I send out the poster and the links, just send me a message right after this. Um, anyone, please put my number in the chat. Just text me and say, hi, I was at JTT today. I want to be added to the broadcast list and I'll be sending you weekly reminders of the teachings and the posters as well so you could share with people um so you could share with people share with friends um as well as the podcast if it has blessed you all right let us take our benediction uh share screen all right feel free to unmute yourselves let's read together one, two, go. 
I am a diligent student and doer of the word. I am a teacher of the word. The word is profitable for my growth. By the word, by the word, I am training righteousness. And in the word, my spirit rejoices. Glory to God. Awesome. So I would see you all um, next week by God's grace. Have a great week. Have a great January. Um, First Timothy chapter one, we continue. We'll hopefully bring it to wraps and get into chapter two. All right, guys, that's my number. So if you want to be added, please send me a text. If you have any questions, please send me a text as well. Send me a VN, send me a text. I would always, always respond. Um, Have a great week, guys. Bye.